It is Monday, March 23rd, and welcome to the latest edition of the Ken Navarro podcast. Hey, I'm Ken Navarro. Who else? (laughs) Today, uh, as my guest, I have a, a very important musician in my life. He was somebody that I met when he was just getting started. Uh, His father, who was managing him at the time, asked me to produce what would become his first national record. And of course, I'm talking about none other than the remarkable saxophonist Eric Darius. Eric now lives in Los Angeles. Uh, When I met him, I was doing a show, a concert in Tampa, Florida, uh, which is where he uh, grew up. And he's since relocated to L.A. We'll talk about that, amongst other things. Uh, I've been busy in the studio working really hard on what's going to be my 22nd full-length album. I've just completed writing the 10th song, which is a tribute uh, that was a long time in the making to the comedian Robin Williams, who died so unexpectedly uh, last year. Uh, I think it's a beautiful song. I can't wait to share it with you, but there's nine other brand new songs as well. Still trying to decide to include if I should include anything from the trilogy of songs I released this past January, Hope, Joy, Strength. I'm not sure. They kind of stand on their own. I'm not really sure. Let me know what you think. Uh, maybe I'll include one of those songs in this new album if it fits, but um, still not sure about it. But uh, But anyway, and for those of you who've been asking, I've been beginning the show uh, playing a little bit of the lead song from that trilogy, Hope. Uh, So in case any of you are wondering, and I think I'm going to end the show today when my interview with Eric Darius is done with a little bit of the track, The Stars, The Snow, The Fire from Dreaming of Trains. But anyway, without further ado, let me introduce you to my very special guest, Eric Darius. Eric, it's great to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm great, Ken. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, now you're in California now, right? You're in L.A.? Yes, I moved out to L.A. about two years ago um, from Tampa, Florida. So uh, enjoying being out here. Yeah, tell, I'm curious what your primary reason for making the move from Florida to the West Coast was. Really, the, the primary reason is just more opportunities. I mean, I feel like I've done quite a bit, you know, within the last 10 years in my career, as far as jazz is concerned. And at this point mm-hmm. in my career, I'm definitely looking to broaden my horizons and build my brand outside of just what I do now and broadening it into TV opportunities and um, acting, a little bit of modeling, and really just taking my brand to a whole nother level. And I've had so many great opportunities already since I've been here. I was on a, a TV show on TNT called Mob City where mm-hmm. I was performing performed on the X Factor with Mary J. Blige and David Foster. And those kind of opportunities you just don't get back in, in Tampa. So. Right. That's right. It it's you know, it's funny. I've seen it go in cycles too, where, you know, East Coast versus West Coast. Uh, when I, I lived out on in the West Coast in LA in the West Valley in Woodland Hills for most of the nineteen eighties for about ten years. Uh-huh. And that was a time when a lot a lot of people were going that way. Right. And then in the nineties it seemed like there was this move back to things on the East Coast. And now I think it's really back in, in LA again. And uh, I think your timing is great, and it's great to hear that those other kinds of uh, uh, things outside of music are already starting to happen for you. Are you doing any session work? I don't know what the scene is like now. I know it's changed a great deal since I lived there, but uh, are, are there any opportunities for playing uh, on sessions with uh, 
you know, recording sessions with other musicians uh, or and other kinds of music, maybe? Occasionally. I mm-hmm. mean, I think session work has definitely changed over the years here where, you know, for musicians, it was a constant thing, you know, years ago. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I definitely pick up some things here and there. You know, some producer friends of mine will give me a call whenever they need some, you know, horn lines or, you know, so there, there's still those kind of opportunities out here, which is great. But not, not as often. Right, right. And I've tended it. I've heard that it tends to be that kind of work where I, I assume you have your own studio in your home and and you'll somebody will send you the tracks and you'll play and you'll send it back to them. Is it that that kind of uh, an arrangement usually? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I sometimes still do, too. But man, when I lived in L.A., of course, things had already started to change, but they were still hiring saxophonists and guitarists anyway. <laughs> they couldn't do that without us. But, you know, even now I'm not so sure. But so tell me a little bit more about the acting and the modeling um, work that's come your way. You, you, you mentioned X Factor, which is really great. And, and the show on TNT, how did those things come about? Did they, were they in the works before you made the move out there or, or did they happen since you made the move? They definitely happened since I made the move. I mean, for me, one of the main things is really just networking. And, you know, mm-hmm. coming out here was kind of starting over in a sense because I'm mm-hmm. looking for opportunities outside of, you know, jazz and what I normally do. So really just getting plugged into the scene, doing a whole bunch of networking, meeting a lot of great people. And uh, this, this X Factor opportunity just kind of came out of the blue where David Foster was doing a special with Mary J. Blige. And, um, wow. They were looking for a saxophone player. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it was actually pretty funny because they were recording in Clearwater, Florida, which is where I'm from. <laughs> oh, man. Not too far from where you lived in Tampa, yeah. Exactly. So they flew me out from L.A. basically to go back home <laughs> to record <laughs> with them great. for uh, this home shopping network special that Mary J. Blige was doing. And, um, you know, they enjoyed it so much that they brought me back a few months later to perform live on the X Factor with them. So it was really a good opportunity, but being in LA definitely have opened up a lot of new doors for me. Oh yeah. It, that just it wouldn't have happened the same way. It's funny that, you know, the, uh, the first thing with X Factor was, you know, 20 minutes from where you were from, but at the same time, it wouldn't have happened if you were still there 20 exactly. minutes from where they flew you to, you know? <laughs> It's just the way it is. And I know sometimes it's just there's so much going on out there. And it's the networking thing. I remember it brings back memories. You know, it was like starting over. And and it's interesting because you moved there. um, Did you move there? You you were in your early 30s, late 20s? Uh, Late 20s. Yeah, that's exactly when I made the move, too, so many years ago. Uh, I'm sure in some, some ways things haven't changed in the sense that it's all about being in, in that pool when opportunities come up. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, you, you have to hear about them, you know, and they happen quick. I they remember do. Some, of the first, some of the first breaks I got doing TV recording work were somebody calling me at midnight to say, can you be in San Diego by 7.30 because our guy can't make it, you know? And then you get three hours sleep after the gig you were at, and then you drive three hours to get, because that's what how it is, you know? Yeah, but it, it that's really how is. quick things can, yeah, they can come up that way. Well, that, and, and the turnaround time is so quick because literally, I mean, I'll get a call, you know, the day before they need me. I mean, I've really missed out on a great opportunity to be on Clint Eastwood's movie Jersey Boys. 
And uh, they had called me to, you know, to perform. And I guess they had a role that they needed fulfilled, Mm -hmm. but they needed me there the very next day, the next morning. Right. And of course I was leaving town. So things turn around really quickly. So being here is a, it's a big advantage. So when opportunities like that come, you can just jump right on it. And many times you can, and but sometimes you can't be two places at once. It's as my dad always said, it's a good problem to have. That is a good problem, <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> but it, it's always frustrating when when you can't do everything that you know that you want to do. Now, I, I the other thing, of course, is your your own music and your own releases continue to move forward at a great pace. The new album Retro Forward has been out for a few months, and I know it's doing quite well. How are you feeling about it at this point? I'm feeling really good about it. I mean, this is my sixth album, believe it or not. Oh, I do, (laughs) yeah. You you were a part of the very first album that I did back in 2004, and it's crazy. The time really just flies. Um, But Well, it's, it's... Yeah, I was going to say that's a lot of that's a lot of albums in in a relatively short amount of time. I, the one that we worked on, a Night on the Town, um, I guess you know, like you said, was eleven, twelve years ago, and and you know that was your not your first record because you'd done something uh, on your own in Tampa, but that was your first record that ended up getting nationally released. And and, and how old were you then? That, that so you were like twenty two. Um, I think I was twenty. I was twenty one when we did my first album together, Night of Town. (laughs) Man, oh, that's great. Do you do you remember? um, You probably have a lot of memories of that. I have a lot of memories of that. I I remember that um, even the 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 man that drove the shuttle bus to bring you to where our house where you stayed with us and and we recorded all the music. I remember him. He was so impressed with you. I remember him saying to me, kind of took me aside and I didn't know this man. He was just taking you from the airport to our house. (laughs) He he took me aside and said, take good care of this young man. He's special. And I said, believe me, believe me, sir. I know he is, (laughs) but you know, you, you, you've, you, you've had, had a, um, People have seen it for a long time, I know. Well, let's let's go back. I want to talk all about the new album and, and catch up on on some of the releases between Night on the Town and Retro Forward. But let's go back just a little bit and talk about what I think is one of the many very interesting things about about you and what makes you so unique. You know, obviously you're a great player, and you I think you've been a great player for a long time. But I'm Thank curious you. to go back and, and hear something about your earliest performing experiences. Was there music in your family house? Did, did either of your parents play? Yes. Actually, I come from a whole musically uh, gifted family. My dad plays the bass. Um, my mom sings and plays the piano. My older brother plays mm-hmm. the drums. My younger sister sings, and she used to play the clarinet. So music was really, you know, wow. in my blood. I grew up around it. Yeah. When I was three, four years old, I remember listening to Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder and Earth, Wind & Fire and Michael Jackson and George Benson and David Sanborn. And that was just wow. the music that I grew up with. So it was just so natural <laughs> that, you know, I, I would pick up an instrument. Did you start with the saxophone right away? Or did you, like so many people, play piano or pick up some other instrument first? I'm actually one of the few people that actually started with the saxophone and um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I remember just listening to, you know, Grover Washington Jr. and David Sanborn. And I just always loved the sound of the saxophone. Um, but it wasn't until I was nine years old that I've, you know, had the opportunity to see somebody perform. You know, I've, I've been familiar with the sound of the saxophone, but never had the opportunity to experience it live. And uh, it was at my church on a Sunday morning. 
and uh, his name is Nolan Sharitz, the late Nolan Sharitz, and a great saxophone player. And it was the first time that I experienced it, and I was just in awe. I, I was like, how can you make a saxophone talk? I mean, I can almost hear <laughs> words. It's just so soulful and emotional oh, wow. and powerful. And at a, as a nine-year-old, I just sat in my chair, and I was just blown away. Incredible. And now, did you had you ever even picked one up at that point, you, or mm. had you just been hearing it? Never. I, I've never picked one up; just heard it, and I was familiar with the sound. Um, and was, but it was that was that was the moment that that you, one way or the other, had to find a way to get one and to, and to begin to play. I'd imagine. Yeah, that that was really the moment. I mean, after church, immediately I told my parents, "I want to play the saxophone." I, I was just, I, it just resonated with me. It felt like it was yeah. something that. You know, I felt like it was meant to be, you know, it's like the sax. I didn't find the saxophone. The saxophone found me. <laughs> right. Right. And, uh, you would I, have played it sooner or later. It was just a matter of, of time. It almost it sounds like something that was embedded waiting to be waiting to be pulled out and discovered. Absolutely. And my, my parents bought me a saxophone for my 10th birthday. And uh, I actually started taking lessons with that guy from my church, Nolan. And um, it was such a great opportunity. I, I studied with him for about seven months. And after seven months, he came to my parents and told me, you know, your son really learns very quickly. And I think I've taught him everything that I can at this point. So you're going to have to find another after teacher. Seven months, <laughs> after seven months? He said that months. after seven months. Wow. <laughs> and, and now, how did, did you like studying with him? Did he teach you in such a way that... You know, because as a 10-year-old, it's one thing to learn the basics, which we all need to do, but we also need to feel like we're playing music that, you know what I mean? You wanted to feel like you were somehow on the road to, to playing like Grover Washington and David Sanborn. Did, did he somehow manage to find a way to combine both the basics plus giving you that sense that you were becoming somebody who could play music on the sax? Um, not so much. I mean, really, it was just the basics with him. I mean, my, mm -hmm. my first performance was actually with him at my church. We did a duet together. And this was probably mm -hmm. after about two months of me playing the saxophone. I had my first performance at my church. And, you know, he taught me a lot, a lot of the basics. But I felt like I was, you know, because I was so hungry at, at the time. And yeah. I, I would sit up in my room, lock the door and practice for three, four five hours easily and would you also would you also as part of that practice time be trying to play stuff you were hearing on records already i, I was even before i knew how to improvise or anything i i think mm -hmm. i kind of got bored with the the basics and the whole notes and this and that and i'm like you know what i want to play what i'm listening to i want to play of the course. grover songs and the david sanborn songs and you know, I actually started listening to those records and actually started learning how to play them. So it got to a point with Nolan where he felt like he took me as far as he could. So I had to find a new teacher. But even with my next teacher, which I studied with her for about eight months, it was mm -hmm. pretty much the same thing. I mean, she really helped cover the basics and really, you know, technically took my playing to a whole nother level. But I still had this yearning to just really express myself based off of what I right. felt and what I heard. And I didn't necessarily want to play everything that was on the paper. So I, I really just started studying and, and started transcribing and listening to the greats. And that's really how I became the musician I am today. Whoa. So you actually, those, the transcribing you were doing was something you really just did on your own. You, you were teaching yourself how to do that. 
I, I did. I mean, by the time I was 11, 12 years old, I started transcribing, you know, listening to those guys. And, and it's funny because my dad still has some of my transcriptions. Mm-hmm. And wow. my writing was not that great <laughs> because I'm obviously still learning. But the funny thing is, even though it didn't really make so much sense musically if you read the paper, but mm-hmm. I noticed that my ear was far beyond even my comprehension, because I could play it note for note. And uh, that's when I really knew that I, you know, really had a special gift. I I think exactly. And I think that what was going on up to the age of nine or 10 was you were not consciously practicing, but something was getting set up, uh, especially to do with your ear and all the music that you were hearing. And, And then, of course, there's some kind of innate gift that, that, all musicians have to one degree or the other that that was in there too but it's interesting to hear that you went from teachers who were primarily teaching you technically how to play and how to read and and all right. like as i said before it's all really important but the rest of it was something that you you taught yourself um and that that's not only very impressive but it it's a sign that you were you were absolutely determined, even as an 11 or 12-year-old, that this was you were going to find your voice in this. And it didn't matter whether somebody taught it to you or not, <laughs> you were going to do it. And that, that's right. the sign. That's, that's the sign, you know, um, of somebody who's supposed to be a musician. Um, and, you know, I remember, um, I, so I played piano from about the age of 5 to 11. And then via the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, I discovered the guitar. So uh-huh. my ear training and all that stuff got planted, you know, via the piano. Right. Uh, I, I, I can't imagine just picking up a guitar and then trying to figure out, you know, what people were doing uh, without that background. But I think in your case, besides the gift, which you absolutely have, I think there was also, you know, some kind of... Um, uh, a gestation period going on, you know, all Absolutely. around you. Now, do, now do, do all your dad and your mom and brothers and sisters, do they all still play and maybe not professionally, but still play? Um, not professionally. My, my sister actually sings on occasion with mm-hmm. me. So she does some live mm-hmm. performances with me here and there, and she has an incredible voice. And, uh, wow. you know, what, it's Eric, not something that she's name? pursued. Her name is Nadia. Nadia. Okay. And she's great. actually oh, she actually sang on a, a few of my songs, background vocals. When we did "Let's Stay Together," she was singing on right. that. Right. Oh, uh, she on, sang on that. On "Love wow. TKO," she was singing backgrounds as well. Mm-hmm. Her and my mom. Oh actually. my god! I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, I kind of I think I did know that. Those are two songs, by the way, for our listeners that that Eric and I did on his first national album, "Night on the Town." Uh, oh, that's too much. Well, that's great to hear. You, you, you hear that, that your sister's involved that way. You, you, your family is very special, I think. And, um, Absolutely. Not just, not just from the music standpoint, but having met them and spent a little bit of time with them, I just walked away with such a strong impression of, of, of the kind of love and caring that went on in your house. And I, I can only imagine how important that was to your development as a musician. You know, not only their support, but you know, their, their interest in what you're doing, especially your dad, who, uh, who I think is very special that way. And, I think uh, my how's parents he doing, by actually the way? played, my parents are doing great. Thank you. They're doing really right. well. Oh, I'm glad to hear I'll, that. I'll uh, definitely tell him that uh, we had this interview. He'll be so thrilled. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> good. That's great. Tell, yeah, they're, they're great people. They really are. But I'm sorry, you my, were my saying parents, about your folks. Yeah, I think my parents actually played one of the biggest roles as far as my development as a musician growing up. I mean, 
my parents were so supportive of my passion for music, and mm-hmm. my dad in particular. You know, he really took an interest in you know my love for music and gave me so many opportunities to develop as a musician. You know, he was like right, one of those exactly. band dads that was always there. I mean, he found out about this band called America's Youngest Jazz Band just reading through the paper. And the band was mm-hmm. from ages 5 through 12. And uh, the leader of the band, he went to Juilliard, and he was teaching kids how to play jazz. And Whoa, um, at those yeah, ages, too. That's five remarkable. 5 through 12. So literally, once you turn 13, <laughs> you're too old for the band. You couldn't be in the band anymore. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> wow. Sounds so, like the age that the band should begin, be beginning. Oh, that's amazing. And, and it was really incredible because he would take all of these kids, and it, this was literally a big band. He had about 30 mm-hmm. kids, and mm-hmm. um, we were learning Duke Ellington, Count Basie, and Swing, and that's what this band was really all about. And I joined the band when I was 11, right. and uh, we performed all over the country. We actually performed at the Montreux Jazz Festival in Switzerland, and uh, I was actually 11 years old at the time. And that was, that was actually like the turning point when I knew that this was something that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I mean, I was passionate about playing the saxophone. I loved to play my instrument. But it was something about being in a foreign country, performing in front of thousands of people. And most of these people don't even speak English or understand my language. But music was that common bond, that language that we all shared. And just to see people dancing and smiling and clapping. And in a foreign country, I knew that, at that point, music was so much bigger than myself. And it was so rewarding right. to yeah. me just to put smiles on people's faces and knowing that what I was doing on the stage was affecting everyone out there. That was that moment where it's like, you know what? I had like an aha moment. It was like, this is it. I don't want to do anything else for the rest of my life but play my instrument. And that was actually the, the turning point when I realized that, you know, this was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life at 11 years old in Switzerland. At 11? Yeah. And, and at, but at the same time, you know, that combination of performing, feeling the connection that happens and then seeing the good and the positivity that what you love is doing for other people. That's a pretty, that's, that's a big aha moment. Uh, Absolutely. uh, um, You know, I know you know this, but to be so lucky to have that tap you at such a young age um so many people you know i i'm a lot older than you and i know people that they're not it's not till they're in their 40s that they figure out what they're supposed to be doing right Um, so to and and of course to be able to to do something that you can spend the rest of your life you know working at and getting better and better that you love that's a blessing kind of beyond you know it really is anything yeah, you know, we're uh, we're both lucky that way, but to have to feel it at that young of an age and and to it's like a calling at that point really, you know. Yeah, it um, absolutely is. Yeah, that's that's now I you know, one of the things um once once you got out of high school, I know you you continued to go to school and college in the Tampa area. I, I at least I think I'm right, is that correct? Yes, I went to Blake High School of the Arts. I studied music there. Mm-hmm. It was a performing arts school. Mm-hmm. Great opportunities. Also, one of the top jazz band con- one of the top jazz bands in the country. Uh, we performed in Japan with Wynton Marsalis in New York at Duke Ellington festivals. I mean, I had so many great opportunities just growing up. And all of these opportunities <laughs> really helped, you know, to make me the musician I am. Yeah, I didn't mean to skip over high school. I didn't realize that you had yet another uh, 
jazz band experience, a special one in high school too. Who was the who, who was the main conductor or the, the leader of that particular group? Um, Robert Griffin and Wayne Gallops. They were my uh, band directors at Blake High School, and incredible teachers. Yeah, they, so they were. It wasn't like Whiplash, I take it. No, actually, <laughs> nobody I threw. Think... Have you seen that movie yet? I have. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody threw any chairs, nothing like that. No, pretty no, close, I, I, actually. I told... Pretty close. <laughs> they were pretty intense. <laughs> I'm sure, but there's a fine line. I've told so many people that, you know, uh, if they don't know anything about how creativity works, you know, that's the movie for them. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. I, I don't know anybody who I don't know how anybody who creates well when they're trying to avoid flying objects. Exactly. <laughs> but so those, those, those both of those teachers were were excellent and and were the natural step for you to take you're playing not only as a soloist, but as part of a group to the next place? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it was crucial for me. I think my high school years was the time when I really grew the most. And uh, Mm -hmm. it it wasn't until I got to high school that I started to study jazz, you know, outside of smooth jazz, but John Coltrane and Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and Ornette Coleman and Sonny Rollins. And it just really opened up my whole eyes and my mind to, to, just different styles of jazz and just music, period. You know, I, right. I had so yeah. many great opportunities playing bands there. I was in the marching band, the wind ensemble, the jazz combo. I was on the basketball team, the soccer team, the track team. I was doing <laughs> gigs, about four gigs a week um, with my own band. I put my own band together when I was 13, and I started just traveling around, you know, locally in the Tampa Bay area. And really, my high school years is when I really felt like I, I grew the most as a musician. Mm-hmm. And I had so many great opportunities in Blake High School. And it's, it's so, so what was going on there was not just the, the, the large bands that so many people associate with, you know, jazz education, but all kinds of small groups. And I'm talking about now outside of your own band that you put together, which I would imagine would be a quartet or a quintet or, you know, what may have changed. But so right. that's pretty unique, too, that, the high, that your experience in high school it sounds like a very special school, you know, that it gave you such a rounded uh, types and different types of, of musical experience. Because for a saxophonist, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to play as part of a section, maybe right. not as much opportunity to play, you know, as a soloist, which is, you know, clearly what, what where you were going. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I just, just the basics, I mean, just getting an understanding of playing in different environments and different settings, whether it's a a large ensemble or a small jazz combo or with a symphony orchestra. I mean, just so many mm-hmm. opportunities for me to grow as a musician. And, you know, my teachers were incredible and they really pushed me because I think they knew yeah. that I had a special gift, but they, they didn't show me any favoritism or anything. I mean, they really pushed me to grow as a musician. And, and you know, I, I have to, I give them so much credit and I'm so thankful that I had teachers like that, that, really took an interest in me and my, my development and growth as a musician. Exactly. And they, they saw it as not somebody that they should be, you know, heaping praise on and using to every advantage they could, but instead imagine what the potential of this young man is. Right. Uh, and, 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 and put that bar high for you, which I think is so important because, you know, as, as musicians, we're basically self-employed. Right. And nobody, nobody puts the bar anywhere for us. We have to put the bar there. And so teachers like that, as well as your family, obviously, they teach you also, you know, 
that to 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 keep putting the bar higher and higher, and they they create that sense that that that's what's normal. Absolutely. Uh, so it, you know that's they they sound very special. And and so then you went on to college, and did the music music programs continue, or was college more more of a liberal arts thing for you? Um, college, well, I, the music continued. I um, I mm-hmm. actually auditioned at Juilliard. Um, Wynton Marsalis oh. was just starting a new jazz program. Mm-hmm. And uh, the year I graduated from high school was actually the first year that they started. And mm-hmm. I was kind of at crossroads because, you know, I was interested in going to either Juilliard or Berkeley or, or Miami. Um, right. They have great music programs. But All three of them, yeah. Great, great programs. But I was kind of stuck in the middle where I wasn't sure if I should pursue that or if I should pursue a, a recording career. Because I felt mm-hmm. like opportunities were starting to to come. I mean, people were coming right. to see me perform. I was starting to get radio airplay from my uh, cruising album, which I released when I was right. still in high school, I was seventeen at the time. <laughs> Amazing. And so I'm like, right. you know, trying to make this major decision: Do I stay home, hone my craft, work on my recording career, or do I, mm-hmm. you know, leave home? And you know, it may have taken me in a completely different direction. Um, well, you're trying to decide whether to be a student or is it time to become, in, enter the real world as a as a fully developed player. It's absolutely. you know going to school. You're a student. You're studying. Not that we ever stop studying music. That's one of the gifts that that it gives us. But yeah, that's a a, a crossroads that most people have. Maybe after they finish college. In right. your case, things were so accelerated uh, that for you it was at the age of seventeen or eighteen. But yeah, go ahead and continue with how, how you made that decision. Um, so after talking with my parents for a while, I mean, obviously my, my parents didn't want me to leave, but you know, they were supportive mm-hmm. of whatever decision I made, just whatever was going to be the right. best for me um, from right. my music career, because they knew that I wanted to really pursue this. And my dad was actually my manager. My dad started managing me from the time I was 11 um, until about mm-hmm. six years ago. So he played a huge role in just my, my career. You know, he's been a big oh, part yeah. of it. You know, from he was my manager to my tour manager to, <laughs> I mean, everything. Booking agent. <laughs> no, I mean, you can't you can't ask for somebody to be looking out better for you. Although I'm sure at some point it's sort of like, Dad, <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> it, the other side of that point. relationship. <laughs> I mean, I know that's just but but in retrospect, I, I mean, again, you know, to have to have that kind of attention and care uh, is, is priceless. Yeah, no, I remember well, I mean, he and I had a conversation before, uh, you came down to, um, to work on night on the town and he had, you know, he was great. It was just the right kind of, of way to look out for you. He was, he was trying to stay out of the way. And I think he'd probably been very involved up to that point with, with your music and any recordings you did. So that was hard. I can only imagine what that must've been like for him, because I know as a dad, it's hard to back, it's hard to pull away when you've been so involved, but he did, and he did it really well. And he still conveyed what he was hoping um, that, that the record would, would do for you and, and, and what, what, you know, his ideas of what, what he thought, um, you know, where you were going and musically and a, as a player. So, um, yeah, no, he's, he's, uh, yeah. So, so, did, and so you decided to stay in Tampa and you went to school I, there. I stayed in Tampa, went to the University of South Florida and, um, mm-hmm. I, I was in the music program there and, mm-hmm. uh, it, it was really at that time when my career really started taking off and it was shortly right. after, I think it was my sophomore year 
when I performed at the, uh, the Clearwater Jazz Festival, and Higher Octave Music actually came to see me perform, William Aura right. from the, this group, mm-hmm. Third Force. And that's right. really when things, you know, took off for me. And I, I finally got a record deal at the age of 20. And uh, I, I came and saw you perform and when you came to Tampa. And it was such a great opportunity to, to meet you and see you perform. And that's where our relationship started. Right. I remember that night very well. And my dad would take me to all of these concerts. I mean, literally, from the time I was 10 years old to about 20, I would go to almost mm-hmm. every single jazz concert that came through Tampa. So I, I met Dave Koz and Kirk Whalem and Richard Elliott and all of these guys just as a teenager and seen all these guys perform. So have an opportunity to not only, you know, do 80, 90 plus shows myself as a solo artist in school, but to see and have the opportunity to meet these guys and just be around them and be in that environment constantly was really such a growing process for me. And, you know, same thing with when I met you. You know, my dad took me to see you perform. And uh, that's really where uh, things took off for me. And obviously we, we worked together on my first album. Well, my second album, Night on the Town, but my first nationally released album. And uh, I had such an incredible experience working with you. So oh, memorable. It was, it was mutual. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. I mean, I, I, and it's funny because, you know, you were so much closer in age at that time to the age of my son, my son, Eric. Uh-huh. Um, he was younger than you, of course, but, but you know, uh, and I just remember that, that my, both my daughter, Melissa and Eric, you know, they were sort of, they were, they were in awe of you, but they were also slightly confused because in the day, in the, in the daytime, they saw you completely fitting in um, with the members of my band, you know, these great guys that, that we hired to, to play on your record. They saw, you know, you fitting in perfectly with these people who were maybe twice or your age. Uh-huh. And then it, you, because you were staying with us, they, they saw you as this, you know, very cool 20 year old, but who was like more, more like them in some ways, you know? And so they were, they, I don't think they'd ever seen anything like that. And I, wow. I know to this day, you know, Melissa follows your career very closely. She's always telling me what you're doing. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. She's, she's, she's now 23 years old and or 24. I, she wow, just turned another year older. I can't believe it. I know. Oh my I know. Goodness. <laughs> but yeah, I know it, it, it never stops. That's, that's the thing. Now, you know, when I was coming up with, with smooth jazz and contemporary jazz, when I was in my 20s and then in my 30s when I moved, moved to L.A. In my, when I was 29, you know, the, the, the age group was coming up with contemporary jazz at the same time, you know. And uh-huh. now, of course, that age, that age group has, has grown older uh, and are still following the music. But now you enter you into this being, as I was alluding to, so much younger than most of the players and a lot of the audience. And I'm curious um, how your music, especially the music on Retro Forward, you know, how that you feel that relates to your age group and, and their musical tastes and interests. Absolutely. I mean, as, as a recording artist, really my goal with every album I release is to, to stretch myself musically and try mm-hmm. things that I've never done before. I'm not one of those musicians that's complacent. I'm, I'm constantly searching and growing and maturing as a player and a musician. 
But one of my goals with my music is to make music that's relevant for the younger generation to keep music alive. Right. You know, for, right. for kids that are, I'm calling them kids, for kids that are in college and high school and they're listening to, you know, the Justin Timberlakes and the Ushers and the Jay-Zs, Beyonce's, I, I think about them. And, you know, they've never right. really been exposed to jazz and a saxophone and, and music, you know, of this particular genre. And I, I always think, how can I make music that's relevant to them, that they can understand, that they can appreciate, that they can listen to? So, you know, always keeping in mind, you know, my role as trying to bridge that gap between the younger generation and the older generation, making music that's relevant, really just all the way across the board. And I've never really seen myself particularly as just a jazz musician. I mean, smooth jazz is really the genre that's embraced my music and given me a platform. Um, but... I'm a musician. I play jazz. I play R&B, pop, hip-hop, rock, gospel. I mean, I grew up listening to all those styles of music. So when you hear my music, you'll hear all these different elements. I was going to say, you have a very rich stew that you, to, to pull from. Uh, plus, I think what makes you unique is in, in your, your age group, you're really tied in and, and understand what is going on in the contemporary uh, pop music scene. And I hear you incorporating that and you can have been doing that ever, ever since the first record. Absolutely. So, uh, but now, now with your writing now, and especially your writing on retro forward, how did that, you know, the consideration of trying to reach out to that younger, I call them younger only because they're younger than me, but um, <laughs> you know, right. how, how, how did the, your writing, uh, change or not so much change but how, how has it affected your writing uh you know trying to reach reach that broader audience and especially the younger part of it well my, my approach with this album was really different you know I, i'd worked with so many great producers from you know yourself paul brown darren ron uh huge group produced a couple songs for me but with this album i really wanted to step outside of my comfort zone and work with mm -hmm. producers and musicians i'd never worked with before that weren't even jazz mm -hmm. producers right, um, right so my manager introduced me to uh tony dixon incredible r&b mm -hmm. pop producer who's actually partners with babyface so he's written and produced songs for beyonce christina aguilera i mean the list goes on and on and on and another producer's name is bluetooth um, who is with the, the R&B production group, The Underdog. So he's written and produced songs for Chris Brown and Jordan Sparks and Tyrese, Boyz II Men. And these are guys that, they're, they're musicians first. So they have the ear and the understanding. So even though they produce R&B, pop, and hip-hop, they're, they're musicians. And so it was really the perfect marriage because they were coming from a different perspective musically where, you know, they're literally writing songs for Beyonce and artists like that. And, but because they had an understanding and love for music and jazz, it was really just a perfect combination. So they were coming from a different direction. And I think just our creative, you know, aspects of music just really combined for just, you know, what Retro Ford is really all about. And with this project, oh, it was yeah. about, taking the music that I grew up with, the Earth, Wind and & Fires and Stevie Wonders, and trying to recapture some of those sounds, but with a contemporary twist, and then also take smooth jazz into like a newer, cutting-edge direction. So for me, it was right. just territory that I've never really explored or gone before. And that's really what this album is about. It's taking a look in the past 
you know, which is the retro side of the album, and then moving the music forward to a exactly. newer direction. So it's, it's bringing the older sounds that, you know, I grew up with that maybe some kids never heard before, and then incorporating the sounds, you know, that they, they hear on radio today. And that's really what right, and- Retro Ford is about. Right, and using producers that, that I'm sure in many ways it was, a, it was really a new thing for them to work with you and work with saxophone that way. Uh, and now, did you co-write with, with either, of the, either, any of, either of the producers that you worked with on Retro Forward? Yeah, we uh, co-wrote most of the songs together um, mm-hmm. from, the first out, from the first track to the last. I mean, it was a very collaborative effort. And, you know, they had such great insight, you know, having worked with all these other artists, you know, they, they introduced a lot of new things to me. So it was another growing process for me. And again, you know, working with guys I've never worked with before, it was really stepping out of my comfort zone. And I think that pushed me to, you know, higher heights and to really take oh, more yeah. chances musically. And I think the result is, you know, what the album is. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's really exciting. And I can hear it on the record. And, and you know, go, going out of your comfort zone is, especially when you have a big comfort zone, you have a lot of things you can do. But taking that and, and stretching it with, with people that, while I'm sure the relationship was very different than your teachers in, in, in high school, um, in a way, you know, these are, peop- these are new people that are saying, no, we got to push this farther. You know, we're going to we take we're going to take it somewhere beyond what you've done. And, exactly. Uh, yeah, that's that's a great way to to reach out to that to that younger audience too. I mean, the music and the the influences you're talking about, uh, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, uh, they're timeless. They are. Uh, and I think I think the younger generation knows more and more. <laughs> they certainly know a little bit more about one particular Marvin Gaye song. Anyway. <laughs> uh, for, for better or for worse. But, right. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, that, that's, you know, it, it shows on the record, and, and that makes total sense um, knowing now that that's, that's the teamwork that created that new sound. Um, yeah, smooth jazz is very ripe to be taken in new directions now. Uh, you know, the, the demise of smooth jazz radio as we knew it, it, you know, when, when I was coming up with it and then towards the beginning of your career, when it was still, you know, all over the country, uh-huh. um, with the, demi- the demise of that, as sad as that is, it's made it so that artists like yourself, um, who have so much to offer in terms of broadening what jazz, not just smooth jazz, what jazz, how it can be defined. It, Absolutely. It makes the, it, it really clears levels things, you know, in a good way. I mean, I don't know how it was for you because, you know, for me, when I started my record label in 1990, it was, the, it was simultaneously right when the radio was opening up. Uh-huh. And by 1995, there were smooth jazz radio stations in virtually every major city uh, throughout the country. Uh, now, by the time Night on the Town came out, there was still uh, a strong radio presence, smooth jazz radio presence. But within the next four or five years, it just changed. And eventually, uh, yeah, and it's it's good what we have now. I mean, there's still there is still forms of radio. And of course, it's redefined completely. But for you as an artist, I'm curious... Um, you know, since when you started, there was smooth jazz radio throughout the country, but it not being that way now, how have you gotten your music out there without that kind of traditional radio support? 
Well, I, as you're saying, I mean, I think just the music industry as a whole has completely changed and it, it's constantly evolving. And I think, you know, for artists like myself, you know, we have to adjust to the times as well. You know, we, mm -hmm. we now live in the digital era and the social media era. And, right. you know, there's so many opportunities out there for musicians to have their music heard without, you know, the conventional, traditional way. I mean, people are getting discovered right. on YouTube every day. And I think social media has created a... Uh, an exciting way for artists to connect directly with their consumers and fan bases. So I'm literally on the Instagrams and Twitters and Facebooks constantly because I right. find that not only am I gauging with my audience, but they're getting to know me as an artist outside right. of just the music that they hear. And it's, and I think they want to feel like they're a part of something. And, and literally, I mean, I think over the years, my, my fan base has grown just from the social media side of things And that's also introducing younger people to my music. So I think it's this constant thing of music evolving and, and the, the ways of having music heard is constantly evolving. And we just have to stay ahead of the curve and just embrace every opportunity. And that's really what oh, I've yeah. done. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think that these, these diff, all the venues that you talked about for, for being in touch with your fan base and creating new fans, they all put you make it so that your music goes directly to those people exactly um, and that's that's what people love i i find that while they want to hear updates about what i'm working on musically and 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 that kind of stuff on say my facebook page they really want to hear and this sounds a little funny but but i've i've learned to to, to get it you know they also <laughs> want to know you know about what movies you saw you know right. or, or what you know or what 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 else you like to do it, it for especially for people who are who are fans of yours they they want to relate to you as you said as a person uh, whose music they love um, right. It, it, it makes the, I think the, the experience of listening to, to, to your latest CD for them, for example, I think it makes the experience uh, heightened uh, when they go, I really like this man. <laughs> you <Right>. know, and, <laughs> and, and, and I, and not everybody has, has all of that stuff to offer. You know, I was um, different people have different comfort levels with it. I, uh, a couple months ago, um, I got a call from an old friend of mine. I'm, I'm sure your, your paths have crossed Nelson Rangel. Oh yeah. Uh, another, another great incredible, saxophone. Incredible saxophone yeah. And you know, he's also a, a great flute player too. And he made, he had made two albums, one a saxophone record, one a flute record that he'd done all on his own, but he had no idea what to do with them. And, right. um, You know, and Nelson didn't even have a Facebook page, you know, oh, wow. that was one of the first things I know. Do you believe that? I said <laughs> that was one of the first things I said. And, 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 you know, it's it's hard for some people who are used to the old system. Um, right. It's 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 who grew up that way, uh, it, you know, but you have to adjust just like music changes um, the way that people find out about it now. I mean, I. I think the number one way that I seem to see is YouTube. That's probably the number one way people find out about new music. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you, you just, you know, to me, I love it. Like you, I think it's great because it puts you in direct touch and gives you more control over your career and over your music. And I mean, I think those things are, are great, you know, and especially I, I for somebody incredible. like, like you, who's totally comfortable with it. And you have a personality, if you don't mind me saying it, and I really mean this, that, that is very um, interesting. Uh, your story is very interesting, but also you as a person are truly um, a, a giving 
good person that people can see that and um that 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 just makes it all the more makes the message of your music all the more meaningful and powerful to people in in my opinion i appreciate that now you're you're still doing a lot of live playing i assume you know in support of the record and and just in general um yes i'm I'm curious and this is a question i get a lot and and so i want to ask it uh, a question i get a lot not in interviews but but from (laughs) from from fans of the music uh-huh. And I want to ask it to you, too, because I know it's something people are interested in. What what would you say for you as a as a saxophonist is is the main difference between performing live and working in the studio? And I, you've probably done both, probably even amounts, maybe perform live more. But you've certainly spent a lot of time in the recording studio. So I'm curious what you think are the main differences or difference between playing live and, and recording. Well, I think one of the the main differences, I mean, obviously when you're in the studio, you're in a completely different mindset. You're, you know, you're obviously working on music. There's ideas that you're trying to convey. Um, But when you're performing in front of audiences, it, it almost, the music is almost secondary. I mean, it's really about the connection with the people that's in front of you. And you're using this instrument um, as the vehicle to connect you with that audience and so when I'm performing, I almost get outside of the music and I'm just connecting with people. I feed off people's energy. When I'm in the studio, it's, it's hard to really get inspired because I'm just standing mm-hmm. right there in front of a microphone. But when I'm in front right. of thousands of people, I'm feeding off of the crowd's emotions and their energy and their excitement. And that takes my playing to a whole completely different level. And, and there's no better feeling of your music being validated by these people that, you know, mm-hmm. you've been working on in the studio. You make music for people, for people to appreciate. And having it really just come to life in a live setting is really what it's all about. And that, to me, yeah, is really yeah. the, the biggest difference between, you know, recording in the studio and performing live. And I love to record. Don't get me wrong. I love to make music and make albums. But the reason why I play the saxophone is to perform, is to be in front of people, is to you know, make a difference in people's lives. I mean, it means more to me just to see one person smiling and dancing than anything else. When somebody comes wow. up to me yeah. and say, you know what, I've been going through a lot, you know, I've suffered losses in my family or I'm having health problems, but your music is what's helping me get by. That to me is when I know that, you know, I'm using <laughs> right. my gift. It's so much more than just playing notes. It's about making a difference in people's lives. And that's really the live element that you don't get when you're in the studio. And the, the point you made that sticks probably the deepest with me is when you said it's almost playing live, it's almost like the music is secondary. <clears throat> it's never far from the, the, the focal point, of course, but for you, it, it, you stop thinking, it sounds like you're saying, and you let go of something and you, you connect the, the horn almost disappears, even though that's your voice, you know, right. It, exactly. It, that, yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that's what one of the things, I mean, I think all music, you know, benefits from the live performance, but jazz quote unquote types of music um, seem like they're just meant to be experienced that way. I, I, I think, absolutely. you know, 
people, I mean, I still hear people will say to me after a live show, I didn't know I liked jazz so much. (laughs) Because (laughs) I I think, you know, every single time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because they've just never experienced it live like that. And especially uh, when they're in the hands of somebody like you who just, you know, owns that stage and they know that that um, they're they're in really good hands. And so they let go, too. And right. let themselves forget for a moment whatever it is that that is worrying them or stressing them, and the music just becomes this this you know wonderful refuge, uh, whether Absolutely. it's on record, but certainly certainly live too. Um, and, and speaking of live performances, I'm I'm curious. Um, are you? I know you you lead your own band, and your primary. Uh, live shows are are under y- your name, but are you right. still going out on the road with Brian Culbertson occasionally, or any other people? Um, no, you know, I've I've always kind of made it a point to really focus on you know myself as a solo musician. You know, I've been a solo right. artist since I was twelve years old, and while I love collaborating and working with other artists, you know, I Brian Culbertson's a great friend of mine, and I had a great opportunity early on, shortly after we. Made Night on the Town together in 2004. I went on tour with Brian. And that was such an amazing opportunity for me just to be in front of more people. The exposure and the experience of performing on stage with him was, you know, one of the best experiences I've ever had. I was going to say, I think the two of you had a lot to bond over besides just music. You were both very young and and really prodigies, both of you. And his dad obviously very involved in music, just like your father. Right. We had so much in common that just playing on stage was so natural. And I mm-hmm. think the energy that we both have as well, I mean, people just went nuts. And I, I had such a great opportunity playing with him. I toured with him for about two years. And then yeah. I really wow, went I on to... That. Yeah, and we, I, we haven't toured together since. It's been about maybe seven years or so since I've, you know been on the road with him but we still do some things together occasionally he has his own jazz festival in napa valley that he hosts every june which i'm actually going to be performing again this coming june that i'm excited right. about so we'll get a chance to perform together again um but yeah I've, I've really just been focusing on you know my solo career and promoting my albums yeah you have to make that decision and i think especially when you're in l.a um, there are so many things that can pull you away from that solo career if you're not careful. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and it's great to have opportunities, um, but sometimes the word no is important too, <laughs> you know, being able to, to prioritize. Because, you know, it, like you were saying, all these new opportunities uh, outside uh, are connected to music, but, not, but outside of music, the acting and the modeling – uh, those those kinds of opportunities, notwithstanding their musical opportunities, I'm I'm sure too. And right. You have to weigh carefully, you know, which which ones you do. And again, great problem to have. It's wonderful. It is to, a good problem. Be, yeah, for people to want you. And well, I want to close up the interview uh, just by asking you uh, one more question about, um, you know, your really your future. Um, are you already at work composing new music or are, are you in the, the touring mode now and, and playing, you know, really entrenched in the music from retro forward? I'm really in touring mode right now. I mean, for me, when I'm mm-hmm. working on an album, I really have to shift the gears. And mm-hmm. um, this last album was actually the longest gap that I've had in between albums. It was actually 
um, on a mission that I released in 2010. And Retro Forward was, you know, just several months ago. So it was a four-year right, gap. Right, right. Um, yeah, that so is a long time. That, that's a long time for me because I typically release a new album every year and a half to two years. Yeah, right, um, that's right. So I, I definitely don't plan on, you know, taking another four years to do another album. Um, however, I, I have completely switched gears to the touring side of things. I have a pretty busy schedule, a um, bunch of different jazz festivals and clubs all summer and, and fall. So I'm, I'm really focusing on that right now, and I'll probably start, you know, working on the next project or at least think about starting putting some songs together, probably closer right, towards the end right. of the year. Right, I understand. <clears throat> I tend I tend to work the same way. Are you using? Uh, is your band primarily from LA now, or are you still using players? You know, some of them from back on the East Coast. I'm actually using a little bit of both. Um, I've mm-hmm. actually since maybe 12 years ago. I, I my dad came up with this idea since I was on the West Coast so much, but I lived on the East Coast. Was to put another right. band together on the West Coast. So I actually exactly. have two bands. I have my band um, in Florida, and then my band also here in LA. And the, the cool mm-hmm. thing is, with my guys back in Tampa, those are guys that I've literally grown up with. My bass player right, has been playing right. with me since I was 14 years old. So there, there's <laughs> wow. a special bond and connection that we have. Um, so it, it's always great to, to be able to play with those guys as well. But I, I do have a band here also. Now, Eric, before we go, I want to ask you about a couple things that are of particular interest to me, but I know they're going to interest our listeners, too. Um, I know that you go out and you, you, as part of your touring, you actually visit elementary schools and, and, and talk to the kids and, and give them some sense of, of what music and what you're doing with music are about. Would you mind telling, telling me about that some? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, started my own campaign called On a Mission in the Schools about five years ago, mm-hmm. where I go to different elementary, middle, and high schools all over the country. And really the whole purpose of me starting that campaign is to you know, keep music alive in the schools and spread the importance of music education and really just inspire the kids and expose them to jazz and, and music that they're not necessarily familiar with. And, um, you know, for me... I, I was very blessed that I had so many great opportunities in school. And I know that had it not been for the opportunities I had at Blake High School or University of South Florida, I really wouldn't be the musician I am, and I wouldn't be here today doing what I do. And it's really right. unfortunate that these kids now in schools, they don't have music programs. They don't have the opportunities that I had coming up. And exactly. it's, it's heartbreaking because I'm like, well, what are these kids going to you know, what are they going to do? They don't have that creative outlet, which I think every kid needs. And music is such a great positive way to express yourself. And um, And it has so much to do with learning and and how people learn. And so you're actually taking out of your time. I mean, you're out of your goodwill and time. You're going into schools and and having them deal directly with a world-class saxophonist. And, and that must be very gratifying, but I think primarily it's an incredible thing for those kids. It is. I mean, and, and I can see, you know, when I when I walk in and I have a saxophone, you know, some of them may not be interested or like, well, what is that? Or this is going to be boring. But I, I have a way of connecting with kids oh, and yeah. making music that's relevant to them. I'll even play some of the songs that they like, whether it's a Taylor Swift song or Usher or Chris Brown. And it's really just a fun way of engaging kids and inspiring them and showing them that they can pursue music. They can do exactly what I'm doing if they work hard at it. 
And, right. you know, really my, my goal is to help raise money for these schools so they can have music programs, so kids can have instruments, and we can just really keep the music alive. And that's truly my vision. So uh, I'm, I'm going to be starting my own foundation, and that's really what, you know, the foundation is going to be geared towards. But it, it, it's really rewarding for me because there's nothing that means more to me than inspiring the, the younger generation and just keeping this music alive. Because I remember when I was a kid and having the opportunity as a 10, 11-year-old to see Kirk Whalum and Dave Cause and Richard right. Elliott and you and all of these world-class musicians, and kids aren't getting that these days. So that's really what this, this campaign's all about. Absolutely. You're right. They, they really aren't. It's just it's the first thing that gets cut. And not only that, but this kind of addresses what we were talking about, uh, you know, earlier in the interview, you know, about reaching out to young people and exposing them to jazz. You're also doing that at the same time. You're making this music suddenly be, so, you know, something they relate to. Uh, Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's it's a really a win win thing for sure. And that kind of leads naturally into my final question is, um, you know, I know that. Um, the listeners to this podcast will want to know where you're playing in the coming months and into the summer. Uh, and if you wouldn't mind just kind of giving them a, an idea of some of the shows you're going to be doing in the next few months. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to be doing the spring and art jazz fest in Castleberry uh, next Friday, next Saturday, March 28th with Warren Hill. Oh, right around the corner. Yeah. Just around the corner. So I'm going back home to Florida, which I'm excited about. Mm-hmm. I'm also going to be yeah. performing at Yoshi's in Oakland, um, May 16th. Um, also, have the, you ever the, played there before? I have. I've done Yoshi's probably about six or seven times, both San oh, Francisco really? and I've, Oakland. I've only played there once. I think that's a really great venue. It's a great place because it, it kind of has this old school vibe where oh, you yeah. know you, you <laughs> it's can real think, history. Yeah, there's so much history there, and it's so intimate, but it's such a beautiful venue. So I, I really love going back there. Um, also doing the, the Sea Breeze Jazz Festival in Panama City in April. Um, I'm mm-hmm. hosting uh, a dinner cruise, which I'm excited about. On Thursday night, we're also doing a, a jam session, which I'm hosting with my band, but I'm performing as well. Uh, so my, my tour schedule is pretty busy, but I, I always like to tell people to go to my website, which is www.ericdarius.com, and have my full right, tour schedule Right, they can always get there. Yeah, get the latest updates. And you mentioned earlier you're going to be doing you're going to be in Napa at, with Brian Culbertson's festival, and that's in the summer. Do you do you have a date on that one yet? Yeah, it's the uh, second weekend of June. I'll be there from June second 10th through the fourteenth. And um, oh, that's great! It's going to be a great. Oh, no, it's time. nice to. Yeah, it's like you've got residences in a few of these. You know what I mean? The Sea Breeze <laughs> and the Napa. You're you're actually going and you get to stay for a while and 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 do a lot of different be a, be. Uh, integral part of these events you know, and that's actually one of the most Napa, which is great the exciting parts for me is because it you know i'm there for an extended period of time so i can be a part of different mm-hmm. things that's going on in addition to my right. scheduled performances so um yeah i'm, I'm going to be all over napa i'm going to be doing some shows with brian i know shaka khan's also going to be performing so it's going to be a Ooh, great time cool. oh that's going to be fantastic have you ever gotten to play with shaka khan I haven't. I, I haven't. So maybe, maybe this time. Wow. I, that's well, a great I'll have my saxophone ready. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I know you will. And if she's, and if she's smart, she'll understand what, what an opportunity has presented itself. Well, Eric, congratulations on everything that you've accomplished. You, you know, there couldn't be a more deserving uh, person, both as a musician and just as a good human being. 
but nevertheless, you've worked really hard, and I, I, I always watch what your next record's going to be, and it's, it's fun for me to, to, you know, think so many years back when we worked together on that first national release, and then <laughs> to see, you know, the amazing things that you've done and continue to do. So thanks for joining me today, and, uh, you know, My uh, continued success. And, and thank you for, you know, taking me under your wing from day one and really giving me that opportunity that, you know, a lot of people didn't give me that opportunity, but you, you saw something in me and I'm oh, forever grateful for that. So oh, yeah. I, I wouldn't I, be I, here today had I not met you in, in Clearwater and worked on the first album together. So thank you. Well, thank you. I, it's nice of you to say, I think somehow you would have risen to the top one way or the other. That's my <laughs> I, I always tell people, I'll leave them with this. When we were working together, we'd spend all day, you know, with the band, getting all the tracks down and you'd play all day along with them just what we call scratch tracks in the studio you right know? just just so the band had something to inspire them and they were inspired uh and then it and then after their all their tracks were done then we would work on your you know your sax tracks playing to all the great stuff they'd put down and we would work and work and work and we'd get to this point where i'd be just like you know uh uh, we've been at this 10 hours. I think this is good for the day. And you were, you were like, you were like a young engine. I always tell people you were like a young engine. You were like, all right, all right, I can keep going. Yeah. And I think, oh my God, he is really younger than me. So he's just, he's just, like I say, a young engine, but that, that I admire that, that, that great attitude, that kind of confidence. And yet at the same time, you know, uh, your humbleness is what keeps you growing and getting better and better all the time. So, um, well, you know, thank thanks you. for saying that, and, and just good to catch up with you again. We'll talk absolutely, again soon, and, and look, I look forward to it, and hopefully, we can get in the studio together again sometime. That would be fun. I know that's in our future somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. All right, take it easy, Eric. Thank you, Ken. Take care. Well, it was really good catching up with Eric. I think I first met him when he was 19 years old, and. Um, to see what he's become, and uh, in, in so many ways, he hasn't really changed that much because he's still the same confident but humble uh, musician that I met when he was really just just a young man finding his way, but he's <laughs> certainly found his way. Well, I'm going to be back next week. I'm not sure what the podcast will be doing. Um, I've got a couple new interviews in the works, and maybe one of those will be ready for next week. Uh, I've got a number of things uh, that people are emailing me, asking me to talk about with my own music, so I may do that too. Either way, I'll be here next Monday. Thanks for joining me again. I'll see you soon. (laughs) 